0: Matthew 18, and we're reading verses 1 to 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. But it is necessary that temptations come. that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish.
1: Many businesses and organizations, many families have a kind of motto or a brand logo that sums up verbally and visually the essence of what they want to be about. Maybe it's a statement of core values or an easily recognizable picture sort of code of conduct that's going to govern their employees. And, I mean, many of us will realize that here in the West, because of our history, lots of them seem to be in Latin. Uh, I visit a bank to lead Bible studies uh, nearby here. Their motto is Concordia Integritas Industria. It's a great motto. Harmony, integrity, industry. Great thing for a bank. Spent a number of years working for an organization whose motto was Sella et Audax, swift and bold. That's that's a good motto, isn't it? Nisi et nateri, to strive is to shine. And here in the city, my word is my bond, of course. You can't really have an effective city unless you can trust people. Across the road in Lloyd's, in utmost good faith. Today we come to what's known as the fourth discourse in Matthew's gospel. We're working our way through this part of Matthew's gospel. You probably know that Matthew is organized in blocks of material. There's a block of narrative where we find Matthew giving us the accounts of Jesus' life and then instructing us through that narrative. Matthew's our teacher. And then in Matthew's gospel, he, he has a block of what's called discourse, straight teaching of Jesus following each narrative. And we've suggested that the key sentence in the narrative that has just preceded chapter 18 is found in chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus says to uh, Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, that word means rock, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And the church means gathering, assembly. The church obviously is not a building, the church is the people. And people are assembled around the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the King. This Jesus of Nazareth is God's eternal Lord and King. And on this church, on this rock, God is going to assemble his people. And we've seen Jesus doing this, the Canaanite woman from right outside, a total unexpected. And then 4,000, he fed 4,000 from the nations effectively outside of Israel. And then he teaches us that this rock, this truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Jesus we're talking about is the one who's crucified on the cross. So it's the Christ who was crucified to carry the sins of humanity, who who is the rock around which God is gathering his eternal people. And we've recognized, uh, and this is where we just come out of at the end of chapter 17, that this rock, this truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, and He is the one who's died for the sins of humanity, and God is gathering his people to this Jesus. This rock, this truth, is going to replace the mountain of the temple. The dwelling place of God is now going to be amongst people like us gathered. And this rock is going to replace the nation of Israel as the people of God. So it's explosive stuff. And where we go in the narrative is then obvious because in the narrative, we then are being shown, if you like, the core values of this people. This is what this people who he's gathering, this is what they're going to be like. This is going to be who they are in very essence. That's what chapter 18 is all about. And it's a wonderful place for us to be over the next three or four weeks. We're only going to manage about four verses, maybe five, if if we really push it today. But I wonder what motto you would put over the people of God. What would be your kind of logo? I've had an attempt in Latin. Um, I haven't done any Latin since I was 16. uh, So I had to go on to the Latin kind of translate Google thingo. Let me see how you get on with this. Victos sumus. Any takers? I can see a Latin speaker over there. We're not going to ask you out loud in case you're wrong, because it would just be so embarrassing, wouldn't it? But Victor Summers, we are losers. God's kingdom is made up of losers. And today we're going to see entry is for losers. Greatness in the kingdom of God is for losers. And losers will love losers. And if you want the motto, you'll have to look at me for this. Sorry about that. If you want the motto, here it is. (laughs) We're losers. Sorry if you're on audio, listening in. Entry, verses 1 to 3. In order to gain entry into God's kingdom, every disciple must learn, I am a loser. The question that the disciples ask in verse 1 is described by one writer as, quote, prompted by the most shocking hubris, pride. Another, the disciples speak here as men half enlightened, full of fleshly expectation. Now, let's look at the question. I think in one sense we can really understand it. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You can understand it because Peter's been singled out, hasn't he? He's the one who walked on water with Jesus. Uh, Peter's the one. You are Simon, now I'm going to call you Peter. He's the one on whom the, the church is being built. That is the truth that he's been shown. Peter, James, and John have just gone up the Mount of Transfiguration. So you can kind of understand this question and and this kind of, well, who is greatest? Is there an inner ring? Do do some stand above others? Uh, Are some a cut above the rest? And it does look like they're jockeying for position in the way that Jesus turns to them and say, unless you turn, and did they think that matters of status and rank and privilege and position were really what count? Were they wrapped up in a worldly way of thinking? My place in the pecking order compared to the next man or woman? Well, I think they were. The word for child in verse 2 is a fascinating word. It's actually the diminutive for child. It's little child. So verse 2, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. We're talking toddlers. So Three and overs, please, in that direction. No, we're talking this direction, the crash, toddlers. And would one of the nearly three-year-olds, late two-year-olds, please step up here on the platform for a moment, unless you turn and become like one of these. And the language of verse three then drives it home. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven truly makes this as strong and as authoritative as it could be unless fortifies it further truly unless to turn is to take a deliberate course in the opposite direction to the one in which one's going it's a 180 degree affair It's a turning around that's in mind, and it suggests that the natural course of man is in the other direction. By nature, the disciples, with the rest of humanity, are heading in the direction of self promotion, pride, self advancement, and preening. Unless you turn. Actually, one of the translations says, unless you are converted. And the never enter in the original is a double negative. Uh, No, you will not enter. Uh, You'll never, ever enter. You, You absolutely will not enter unless you turn and become like a little child. Now, that raises the question, well, what is it about this child? And popular understanding has a number of things. Is it that the child is naive, you know, asks no questions? And so is Jesus saying, unless you're really simple, simplistic, seek little understanding? That can hardly be true. I mean, this comes in the middle of 28 chapters of dense teaching. Peter insists that we must crave the wordy milk, really study hard God's word if we're going to grow up. And John writes 21 chapters in order that we may have evidence and he expects us to explore it and weigh it. So it's not kind of naive acceptance that Jesus is talking about when he talks about little children. Empty your mind and try believing 25 impossible things before breakfast like the Red Queen in Alice. So is it that the child is innocent? Well, now there's a thought. No, it can't be the case. Jesus stresses over and again that the crooked and dishonest and evil nature of the human heart. In fact, just a couple of chapters earlier, out of the heart of a person come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Is it that the child is trusting or self-effacing? I think not. Look at me, mummy. So people who suggest those sort of things, one has to say, can't have been parents, or uncle or aunts, or godparents, or teachers, or a child themselves. Let's go and work for a week in the creche, shall we? See what children are really like. No, the child in the first century had none of the status or protection that have come to children as a result of the Christian teaching that has shaped our culture. The child was a possession. The child had no position. The child had no right, no rank, no recognition, no standing. The child was ignored and undervalued, unconsulted and unnoticed. The child was no mover and shaker. When the child entered the room, they were to keep quiet The child's opinion was not sought or valued. The child would never be an industry expert. The child had no CV or resume. The child could not create a profile that bigged him up. When the child posted her be real image, she was not being watched. The child was no influencer and had no following. The child was a nobody a dependent, what in our culture you might call a loser. And so here is the entry qualification for the kingdom of heaven. And perhaps we can see why I suggest victos sumus is our motto. We are losers. Unless we recognize that we're losers, we'll never ever enter. Made me ask myself, well, what sense are we losers? Well, we can't work God out for ourselves, can we? We're completely disqualified. Um, you know, when it comes to qualification, how, how we, I've just been speaking on this passage over in another congregation, there's a whole group of Cambridge undergraduates there. You know, when it ca- comes to working God out for ourselves, you know, no, we, we won't get a degree in it if we work him out for We won't actually get an A-level or an O-level. In fact, we won't even get into senior school. We won't even pass our SAT test when it comes to working God out for ourselves. We simply can't do it. Peter's understanding that Jesus is the Christ was given to him by the Father in heaven. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and given them to little children. We can't work God out for ourselves. We're entirely dependent upon him showing us anything. Did you think you worked something out about God? Oh dear. But then we can't enter God's kingdom for ourselves because we're completely disqualified. It's not just that we can't see who God is for ourselves. We can't actually get into his Family for ourselves. We can't even say the Lord's Prayer effectively without Him ent- giving us entry into His family. We're losers. We're disqualified. Remember the Sermon on the Mount blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn their sin, blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. What comes out of our hearts? Evil. So we're disqualified. And we can't even approach God for ourselves. We have no right. What made us think that? And that helps us, I think. It helps us see that what we're talking about here is not so much helplessness and low status in general, but helplessness and low status when it comes to God, to spiritual understanding, to spiritual qualification. We are losers, and until and unless we grasp that, we will never enter the kingdom. Until we come to Jesus, I can earn nothing. I've got nothing. I can contribute nothing. We'll never enter. Augustus' top lady, the hymn writer, who for many years I thought was a lady because his name was Augustus' top lady, it's rather apposite for today. Augustus' top lady was a bloke, and actually he was a very humble bloke. He wrote the, the great hymn, Rock of Ages. Here it is, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. John Newton, who wrote... The hymn Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He, he said this, they that have most grace are those who are conscious that they in and of themselves are nothing, have nothing, can do nothing, and see daily cause for abhorring themselves for their sins. Entry is for losers. But the question was about greatness. That's interesting because we haven't actually begun to answer the question yet. And I think Jesus gets to begin to answer the question in verse four. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Greatness is for losers. Verse 4 seems to develop the entry qualification, if I may call it that, into the hierarchy issue that the disciples raised in the first place. If entry requires turning, greatness requires humbling. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. Now, this is interesting. It actually requires a lot of thought. I hope you brought your thinking cap with you to church this morning. You may not need it in the week when you're doing your job, but you definitely need it on a Sunday when you come to church. It's very interesting. It requires a lot of thought. I mean, it shows us that there really is a hierarchy in the kingdom of heaven. That's interesting, isn't it? Every kingdom has its hierarchy. You can't escape hierarchy. We really are very naive if we think we can have an organization without hierarchy. The question is, what marks that hierarchy out? The word to humble is a word that means to make low, to lower, to bring low, to abase, to level. And it's used of climbing down or stripping off or lowering one's position. And so it seems, from verse 4, that loser status, humility, is never something from which a person graduates. It seems in the kingdom that as a person grows in maturity, so that person grows in humility. It seems that it's not that we humble ourselves in order to enter, but once in we begin to preen ourselves, we found a new area in which we can push ourselves forward, the church pushing for promotion in the pecking order. Humility is if you like, the one key performance indicator that measures a person's rank. I came across this quote uh, this week um, as I was listening to somebody else's talk on on this passage, and he, he was quoting from a biography where the writer said this about himself. I have never lost that quality of childlike humility that characterizes all truly great men. I've never lost that quality of childlike humility that characterizes all truly great men. Now, when we enter the kingdom, we enter on the basis that we bring nothing. As we go on in the life of the church, outside of Jesus, we have nothing to bring. Humility, humility, humility. We used to go and visit for weekends away a conference center called Initial Style, and Initial Style had on its wall, above the serving point or to the right of it, I think, some of the characteristics they hoped to see in their employees. I can't remember what they were, but it was, you know, politeness, every guest matters, you know, here to serve and all this sort of stuff. Well, such such a, a list for the Christian, humility, humility, humility. Good question on the annual review, isn't it? How's the humility going? A great point for leaving Sunday, which today we're saying farewell to a number of staff. We're big on training here and sending people out. Humility as we go. Well, I mentioned I listened to a talk. It's a very dangerous thing to do as a preacher. I was thinking, you know... Um, I'd love to listen to somebody else teach this passage, and I did. Christopher Ashe, if you want to hear a really good talk on this passage, go onto the website, download Christopher Ash's talk. It's absolutely outstanding. Uh, he has a little section in which he traces Jesus and his descent. Born to an unmarried mother. In circumstances that brought great shame. Hated in infancy by Herod. Lived at Nazareth. Nazareth, that's the equivalent of Tunbridge Wells, the sort of place nobody wants to... I'm sorry, that's... Worked in manual labor, had disciples who were fishermen, nowhere to lay his head, maligned by his opponents, rejected by those of his own town, delivered over to the Gentiles who crucified him. So what marked Jesus out? On what basis was he considered great? How come ultimately he was exalted? He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and exploited for his own end. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself in the form of a slave. And he humbled himself to the point of death. And if Jesus evidenced the very character of God, and at the very heart of that character is humility... Would it not be bizarre if his church had as its characteristic pride? Now, I think this requires a lot more thought. Uh, Does this mean that greatness in the kingdom of God might entail not achieving or holding on to recognition, status, and position in this earthly kingdom of man. Does it mean that? Does it mean that we are deliberately to cast off any earthly qualification as worthless? Well, it might well mean that for some. It might. I think of Jesus. He stripped himself. Or the Apostle Paul, who was aristocracy, really, from the tribe of Benjamin, He had the education to match, an establishment membership, Hebrew of Hebrews, accomplishment, why, he was a Pharisee, as to the law, blameless. He'd been to the best school, the best university, the best law firm. He had the best resume, the best list of accomplishments. I count all things as rubbish. Does this mean that we should cease striving with all his energy To use all our gifts and all our energies in the proclamation of his gospel and the service of his people. Yes, yes. So we use everything we are, whatever God has made us, the privilege God might have given us, to one end. For some, it might mean actually dropping to the bottom of the sea. All of those qualifications, those titles... Those prominent positions, those things, those degrees. John Sung, I mentioned on Sunday evening a couple of weeks ago, one of my heroes, John Sung, there can hardly be an Asian person who doesn't in one way or another trace back somewhere along the line to their Christian faith to John Sung, who was one of the greatest evangelists China has ever known. And he went to America at the beginning of the 20th century, one of the first Chinese to go to America for education. And when he was there, he was a bright boy. He got his degree in 18 months. And in the next 18 months, he got his PhD. And uh, he achieved every prize there was to win in terms of medals and titles and all the rest of it. And he's returning home. He's decided, he's become a Christian, to be a gospel worker. And uh, as he approached land, he goes down to the cabin, brings out his trunk with all the diplomas and medals and the fraternity keys. And he drops it overboard. And for some of us, our status, whatever it might be, as we take a different call, as God moves us to, well, it may be taking a very, very, very different position. Does this mean that you and I will strip off everything from ourselves that within ourselves we think, oh, we're real winners. I'm not a loser. I'm a self-qualified achiever. I deserve to be pushed forward in the church. I should be a front runner. What I'm capable of should be recognized. But well, it does mean that. We should strip it all off. If we are not prepared to consider ourselves at the bottom of the pile, place ourselves at the disposal of whichever group of people amongst whom the Lord Jesus places us to serve, we will only ever be minnows in the kingdom. It's worth pausing and thinking how beautiful this makes the kingdom of God and how different. It's different to Westminster, isn't it? Or perhaps your office. Isn't it? It's different to I'm a celebrity. It's so different to the world. Entry is for losers. Greatness is for losers. And we'll just touch on this very briefly. Losers. We'll love losers. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me, to stumble, better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The one such child there refers to the Christian disciple. Jesus is not suggesting that being nice to kids means we find ourselves belonging to Jesus. UNICEF is great, help a London child is a wonderful thing, but the little child here actually refers to disciples. It's the way Jesus talks about his disciples throughout this chapter, in chapter 25 and chapter 10 of this gospel. And to receive is to welcome a loser. It makes the church so wonderful because we come to the Lord Jesus with nothing in our hand and we come to the Lord Jesus with able to contribute nothing, only able to receive from him And as somebody with that self-assessment and attitude, I will welcome, well, anybody. And when the church is going to be made up of the most unlikely people, the nations, the Canaanite woman, well, we're going to need to be that, aren't we? And this turns on its head our whole list of people who we want to be associated with the popular, the powerful, the privileged, the elite. I heard of a child this week, one of the teens, that they have a reputation at school for getting alongside the least popular newcomer in the class, the most unlikely, and loving and serving that individual as their friend. And I thought to myself... What a great one. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the Lord Jesus and for his willingness to become nothing, to empty himself, to give himself in our service. We acknowledge we can bring nothing to him that will make us worthy of him, that there really is nothing in our hand. We recognize, even as we study this, how full of pride and arrogance we are, that out of our heart come the most ugly things. And we thank you, Father, that we are not disqualified, but that you have received us. And we pray that you would, by grace, form Christ-likeness more and more within us. In Jesus' name, amen.